Welcome to this sermon podcast from Myo Baptist Church, and thank you for listening to today's message. We pray that God's Word will be an encouragement to you and a reminder that the Bible has all the answers to living a successful and fulfilled life. Again, thanks for listening. We now join the service in progress. How to Handle Hostility Michael Brown is a writer. He writes for various Christian publications. He wrote the following in a recent edition uh, on Town Hall. He wrote the following. On Sunday, the day of the church massacre, now I'm assuming he's talking about the one that occurred in Texas. He said on Sunday, the day of the church massacre, cultural commentator David French tweeted, The amount of anti-Christian hate on Twitter the same day Christians were massacred is stunning and chilling. You know, I reference the internet. I get most all of my news now from a couple of websites on the internet. And a lot of times on these websites, they have an article and then they allow for comments down below. And it's amazing how vicious some comments are. I mean, someone reporting on something like a church massacre. And comments below will say things like, these Christians are getting what they deserve. Do you understand how bad it's gotten? Have some of you ever read some of that stuff? I mean, some of you that don't read, you might think, well, what's pastor talking about? I'm telling you it's bad. I'm telling you it's getting worse. And if you live in kind of a naive world, I mean, I commend you to a point. You don't, you don't want to just absorb yourself in all this bad stuff that's out there, but we can't be uh, ambivalent towards it. We need to know that it exists. He goes on to write, if ever there was a time when we might have expected sympathy for Christians, or at least restraint in attacking them, the opposite proved true far too many times. On Fox News, Laura Ingram noted that some of the reactions to the shooting pointed to elite hostility towards people of faith stating that hostility to faith infects the popular culture. She also spoke of a rising militant secularism, drawing attention to comments which mocked the prayers of believers on behalf of those affected by Sunday's church massacre. Goes on to write, This is more than heartless and tactless. It is intentional and quite focused. Faith in God is to be mocked, in particular, Christian faith. And when Christians are slaughtered during a church service, that is the perfect time to pile on. To paraphrase, where was your God, you stupid Christians? A lot of good your praying did. Go ahead and stick your head in the sand some more and keep praying to your imaginary deity. You deserve each other, they say in quotes. Unfortunately, at this point in time, these sentiments should not surprise us at all, as despicable and as ugly as they may be. And they are despicable, and they are ugly, and they are only going to grow worse. I can tell you that. I keep up with the news. I do a lot of reading. I do a lot of surveying, if you will. And the hostility is growing greater and greater. It is vicious. It is ugly. You see, 
There's an ever-growing number of people today who believe that all the problems in the world are due to two things, primarily capitalism and Christianity, and they're out to destroy both. They believe the world will be a better place without Christianity and without capitalism. They do not want to coexist. They want to eliminate all vestiges of it. So we are only, your, your children, I hate to say it, your children are only going to see this get worse. Your, your grandchildren are only going to see this get worse. We don't know where it's going to, to end. So, but the question is for us here and now, how do we handle it? How do we deal with this? Should we hide? Should we simply just keep quiet? At work or around family, we need to avoid conflict and we need to avoid confrontation. A lot of people are wondering today, what if people laugh at me? What if people get angry with me, something I say? What if people just think I'm weird? What if I'm threatened? Uh, What if I'm labeled, you know, a legalist? Well, I have to do what I always do because this is what I'm called to do. I point people to God and I point people to Scripture for the answers. It, it really doesn't matter what I say or what I think. There's only limited credibility with what I say, limited to my experiences. So we turn to the Bible, and we turn to the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul dealt with this. He dealt with it often. He was attacked sometime by lost people. He was attacked sometime by born-again people. He got it both ways, both directions. And how he responded is a model for us. And thankfully, how he responded is recorded in Scripture. Now, we could also look to Jesus for the same thing, but we just happen to be focusing on the Apostle Paul today. And I want us to look in Scripture at a passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 1 through 10, because I think that passage instructs us on how you and I are to handle hostility. Now, 2 Corinthians is dealing with the church at Corinth. Okay, Paul is dealing with this church, but the church at Corinth was a carnal church. It was made up of baby Christians. He he said that they were baby Christians. In that church, they were quarreling with one another. Remember, some of them are saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. I like this preacher better than that preacher. And that shows their immaturity and that they're choosing sides. They're fighting over that. Remember, he had to correct them about the Lord's Supper rather than handling it like it was supposed to be done. They were just making it a a, a drunken party, and he had to correct them on that. There's lots of problems in the Corinthian church. One of the biggest problems in the Corinthian church was that they were attacking the Apostle Paul. They were hostile towards his apostolic authority. They were not giving him credit for being an apostle. There were people saying, we don't need to listen to him. He has no credibility. What what makes him, you know, so important that he can tell us what to do? And part of uh, the two books of Corinthians, Paul is defending himself as an apostle. Look look up on the screen in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse number 1. Paul to them is saying, am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord, and not, ye my, and not ye my work in the Lord? If I be not an apostle unto others, yet doubtless I am to you 
For the seal of mine apostleship are ye in the Lord. And then he makes this statement. Mine answer to them that do examine me is this. And I've highlighted that behind me because that's what he's doing. He is being examined. He is being questioned. People in this church are showing hostility towards him. He's facing real hostility and he's having to defend himself. So we're going to pick up on that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and we're going to look at verses 1 through 10 and see what he did to defend himself and see how he handled the situation and from that learn how we're to handle the situation. Because folks, you could come under hostility at work, at school, at any social event. You're there at a ball game visiting with people and somebody raises the question, what do you think about you know, homosexuality. What do you think about transgender? And, and all of that stuff. And immediately, you are put on the spot. And immediately, whoever you're with, it can be family sometimes. It can be anybody. can grow hostile towards you. So are we to be quiet? What are we to do? Well, let's look at this. Okay, Paul is defending himself. So in 2 Corinthians 12, verse number 1, he said, It is not expedient for me, doubtless, to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. Okay, the Apostle Paul knows that there are people that are questioning him, questioning his authority. So he says, look, I don't want to go there, but let me me prove to you why that I am a legitimate apostle. And one of the reasons I can tell you that I have credibility is the visions that I've had. One writer said, the plain meaning of the apostle in this and the preceding chapter in reference to glorying is that though to boast in any attainments or in what God did by him was in all possible cases to be avoided. In other words, Paul did not want to brag on himself. When it came to visions, he didn't want to say, I've seen visions and you haven't. So his, his natural godly tendency is to not want to go there, but he feels he's compelled to, okay? as being contrary to humility and simplicity of the gospel. Yet the circumstances in which he was found, in reference to the Corinthian church and his distractors there, rendered it absolutely necessary, not for his personal vindication, but for the honor of the gospel, the credit of which was certainly at stake. I mean, his credibility had to do with the gospel. If he's not credible, the the gospel that he taught wasn't credible. So he starts off by telling these people who are raising doubts about him is, look, I'm hesitant to do this, but let me talk to you about visions. If you want proof that I am who I uh, claim to be. And then verse number two, he says it this way when he starts talking about the vision that he saw. He, he, He speaks of it in the third person. He doesn't say, I saw a vision. He says, I know a man. I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago. Whether in the body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth. Such an one caught up to the third heaven. Paul begins explaining what had happened to him in the third person. Not that I did this, but I know a man who did this. And one writer says he's doing everything he can to relate this experience without bringing glory to himself. But yet everybody knows, and if you go back and read it and study it, it is obvious that he's talking about himself here. But he's doing it in the third person. And then verse number three, I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell, God knoweth. 
One writer says, Paul doesn't really know if he was in the body or out of the body during this vision. It seems that in his mind, either was possible. So again, understand the big picture here. These people are attacking him. He's feeling hostility. None of us like that. You don't like for people at work to be hostile towards you, judgmental towards you. You don't like for liberal family or, you know, or unsaved family to be hostile towards you. He's experiencing that here. Verse number four, how that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. One writer says, Paul is using terminology common in that day, which he referred to the blue sky as the first heaven, the starry sky as the second heaven, and the third heaven as the place where God lived and reigned. He said he was called up to the third heaven. He said, you're questioning me? Let me tell you the experience I had. I'm reluctant to tell you about it. I don't want to boast, but let me tell you. I was called up into the third heaven. I've seen things that nobody here has seen is what he's telling them. And then verses 5 and 6. Of such an one will I glory, yet of myself I will not glory, but in mine infirmities. He said, I I could have the big head over that. He said, but I'm not going to focus on that. I'm going to focus on my infirmities. I'm going to focus on my weaknesses. For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool, for I will say the truth. But now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he seemeth me to be, or that He heareth of me. One writer says, if Paul wished to boast about his unique experience, he would not be a fool because it really happened. He refrained from boasting about it, however, because he wanted the Corinthians to judge him based on their observations of his ministry, not on his visions. As we'll see in just a second, he knew that if he focused on his visions, hey, I've seen things that you guys haven't seen, he knew that he would run the risk of growing proud. And being arrogant. I mean, that that could go to somebody's head the way God has shown him this preference of letting him see the third heaven. And then he says this. Unless I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, he said, God took care of me. It would be, you know, I had to share this with you that I've had this revelation. He said, in fact, I've had many revelations And God has taken care of me to make sure that I don't get the big head. There was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. He's bearing his heart to these people. And now he's saying, you know, to make sure that I didn't get the big head, God gave me a thorn in the flesh. That has kept me humble. Paul's thorn in the flesh Warren Wearsby says, was given to him to keep him from sinning. Exciting spiritual experiences like going to heaven and back have a way of inflating the human ego, and pride leads to a multitude of temptations to sin. Had Paul's heart been filled with pride, those next 14 years would have been filled with failure instead of success. And we read on concerning this thorn in the flesh, for this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me, And he said unto me, this is God, you know, he's praying. He said, God, take this thorn in the flesh away. God says, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in mine infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Again, quoting another writer, Paul was desperate in his desire to find relief from this burden. But there are two ways of relief. 
It can come by removing the load, the thorn in the flesh, or by strengthening the shoulder that bears the load. Instead of taking away the thorn, God strengthened Paul under it. And God would show his strength through Paul's Paul's apparent weakness. And then lastly, he says, Therefore, here's his conclusion, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I think there's great insight into that verse that should encourage us that with what appears to be an increasing hostility towards people of faith, there's instructions here that should serve to encourage and motivate us. Again, Paul was experiencing hostility towards his apostleship from some people there in the church. And he cites his vision as as proof of the fact of his apostleship. He acknowledges the fact that he's got to be careful or that would make him proud. So he tells the folks, that's why God gave me a thorn in the flesh. And the thorn in the flesh, and, and there's other discomforts that had arisen through hostility, had made him dependent upon God. It actually worked in his favor that he became dependent upon God and appreciative for the grace and the strength that God gave him in dealing with that thorn in the flesh. So, how does that relate to us? And I think it's very important. What does this mean that God gave him a thorn in the flesh? What does it mean that he was dealing with open hostility from people that were questioning him? And that's not fun. When you're a leader and you know God has put you in a position and you have people openly defiant to you, that's quite troubling. Uh, Parents, it's like having a teenage child that gets defiant, gets too big for his or her britches. That's, That's not fun for you to deal with. It's not fun for uh, an employer to have to deal with rebellious employees who, you know, are too big for their britches and they don't want to do what they're, they're told and you know what's best for them to do. And it's true for a pastor. It was true for, for the Apostle Paul. Now, understand this. Paul said, God gave me grace and strength. That doesn't mean that every time you get yourself in trouble, you can claim these verses. In fact, I want you to understand this. I'm going to park it here for a second. And I've thought about this and I've researched it. So many of us as Christians see ourselves as, as martyrs when we're not martyrs. So many of us make bad decisions. We get in trouble. We do dumb things. We don't listen to God's word, don't listen to the preacher, miss church, do this, and we get in trouble, marry the wrong person, take the wrong job, do any one of a number of mistakes, and then we claim this, God's grace and his strength are sufficient. 99 times in the Bible, that's not what that's talking about. It's talking about people who are suffering. What does it say there in verse number 10? For Christ's sake. How many of us suffer for Christ's sake? Oh, we suffer because we did something dumb. We said something dumb. 
We, you know, we, we get ourselves in a mess, but God's grace is sufficient. That's referring to when you're suffering for Christ. When, when you take a stand. It means you get God's grace and strength when you experience infirmities, reproaches, necessities, and persecution, and distresses for Christ's sake. That's what it says there in verse number 10. He says, I suffered these infirmities for Christ's sake. How many of us in this room have suffered any for Christ's sake? Any. Oh, you suffer. I suffer. Nine times out of ten, it's because I did something stupid. I I did something I shouldn't do, or I, I, I didn't do something I should do, and I suffer. Oh, but God's grace is sufficient. That's not what he's talking about. He says it specifically. I incurred these infirmities, these reproaches, for Christ's sake. Because I was living for Christ. Because I did something for Christ. Because I testified for Christ. Because I took a stand for Christ at church. Because I took a a, a stand for Christ at school or at work. I'm suffering. I lost my job because I didn't lie for the boss. You know, people turned against me because, you know, I, I stood up and I said, you know, we love homosexuals, but it's sin. That's what it's talking about. How often do we do that? Has there been anybody in this room? Maybe everybody. I just... Throw the question out there rhetorically. Is there anybody in this room that has suffered any degree for Christ? Look, two quotes about for Christ's sake. One writer says, everything turns on the phrase for the sake of Christ. Only a fanatic would find contentment in self-inflicted suffering and miseries. But a Christian will find a special contentment in suffering endured for the sake of Christ. Another writer, the key to understanding of this verse is found in the expression, for Christ's sake. We should be willing to endure in his cause and in the furtherance of his gospel. Oh yeah, I I agree, we all do a lot of suffering. We all have people misunderstand us and we all say things we... We shouldn't and, and what have you. And, you know, we claim those verses. I'm suffering. Yeah, you're suffering. But are you suffering for Christ's sake? We need to be suffering for Christ's sake. Look, I believe, and you may disagree and that's fine. But if you start, read commentators what they say about the thorn in the flesh. Paul says in this passage, you know, God gave me a thorn in the flesh. And commentators will, if they're honest, they'll say, Scripture doesn't tell us what it is. And it doesn't. And for that reason, some people think that it's, um, it was something physical, hearing issue, speech impediment, what have you. I'm more inclined to believe, and some commentators agree with me, and we won't argue about it because we don't know. But my opinion is just as valid as Warren Wearsby's or John MacArthur's. And some of those guys agree with me when I say, I think his thorn in the flesh was somebody hostile towards him. Some, some, somebody was on his case. Look, verse number 7. Unless I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. The messenger, kind of sounds like a person there. The messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. So I'm inclined to believe, and I could be wrong, but my argument, I think, is as valid as somebody who would think differently. 
And we'll find out when, when we get to heaven. But, you know, Paul took a stand. He took a, took a stand for righteousness and holiness. He, he pointed out error when it was in the church. He says to the Galatians, he said, I'm surprised that you're so quickly removed from the truth. He pointed out to the Corinthians that you, you guys are getting this Lord's Supper thing all wrong. He told them, what are you guys arguing about? I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, you know, Cephas and whatever. He, he's got to correct them and all that stuff. So it only stands to reason when you start correcting people, there are going to be people that are going to be hostile towards you. We need to understand that there's going to be family members that criticize us sometimes for being too zealous for God. Then you might suffer for Christ's sake. There may be some co-workers who think you're odd because Wednesday night you're going to church. That might be more suffering for Christ's sake. Classmates that make fun of you because you don't go to everything they go to and involve yourself in everything they're involved with. Neighbors may, you know, talk about you behind your back because you don't approve of their lifestyle and you didn't come to their party, their neighborhood party, because they were serving booze. In that case, you, that's more likely suffering for Christ's sake. When you pass out a tract to somebody and they throw it on the ground in front of you, when you try to witness to someone and they just kind of blow you off, they're not interested in what you have to say, Hard word gets to you that someone calls you a legalist simply because you're trying to live right. Under those circumstances, I think we could rightly claim that we're suffering for Christ's sake. When you face hostility for your faith, you're promised God's grace and strength. In the previous verse, in verse number 10, verse number 9, and he said unto him, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul, when he was attacked, it was always for Christ's sake. It wasn't because he said something dumb, said something stupid, did something dumb, did something stupid. No, he was run out of town when he was preaching the truth, when he would witness, when he would heal somebody, when he would do things for Christ. My question for us this morning or this afternoon is, do we avoid that at all costs? Three lessons to be learned here, and we're done. What does this passage teach us? This passage teaches us, this, it, 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 this passage informs us that we will face hostility. 2 Timothy 3.12, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Have you ever suffered for Christ's sake? No doubt we've all suffered for our own misdeeds, missteps, and foibles. This informs us that if you live for Christ, it is inevitable. All that will live godly, godly in Christ Jesus, shall suffer persecution. And that's important to know. We just need to know that. We need to have that perspective. That if something comes up at work and you lose your job because you wouldn't lie to the customer like the boss told you to, yeah, you you, you lose your job, you suffer for Christ's sake. You get an F on the paper in school because, no, you're, you're not going to uh, give any credibility to the fact that, you know, you know evolution is, you know, 
an approved science. No, if you get an F, you're going to get an F. I, I, I think we Christians are more and more being influenced by the world because we don't want to offend. Now, folks, we're not looking to pick a fight. But we do want to always stand for the truth. We always must proclaim the truth. And we must always be willing to suffer infirmities for Christ's sake. So this passage, Paul defending himself against the hostility of those backslidden folks in the the Corinthian church, he stood up to them, and in that context, he's talking about having suffered for Christ's sake. He didn't go along with them. Oh, I'm not going to say anything about how they're doing the Lord's Supper because that's going to rock the boat. And, you know, boy, brother so-and-so, you know, he loves the Lord's Supper and he gets a little tipsy and he's a big giver here at the church. And on and on he goes. No, Paul, just he just proclaimed the truth. I think he did it in love, but I think he, he proclaimed it nonetheless. And this informs us that it's going to happen. So number two. This informs us. I think this indicts us. This indicts us. By that, I mean we should feel guilty. We may be tempted to avoid hostility. You know, you had the opportunity to stand up for the truth at work. You know, guys sitting around the table, guys and gals during lunch break, and they turn to you, you know, what do you think about gay marriage? And it's, it's, it indicts us. We say, I don't want to rock the boat. Luke twenty two fifty four. you know the story. This should be convicting. Then took they him and led him and brought him to the high priest's house, and Peter followed afar off. And when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the hall and were set down together, Peter sat down among them. But a certain maid beheld him as he sat by the fire and earnestly looked upon him and said, This man also was with him. Talking about with Jesus. Peter denied him saying, woman, I know him not. Y'all know the story. Jesus taking captive. said, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. This is what we're talking about. Peter, I don't know if he got scared. I, I, you know, I don't know. But I do know that we can relate to Peter. I, I understand the temptation for self-defense to just want things to slide by. But folks, somebody's got to stand for the truth. All that is necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do. And it will be uncomfortable at work. It will be uncomfortable in the classroom. It will be, but have we ever, any of us, to any serious degree, let's put it that way even, ever really once in our life suffered for Christ's sake. So when you, when you we start claiming God's grace and God's strength, well, can he get you through various trials and troubles? Sure he can. But I'm telling you, 99% of the time, you go to the book of Philippians. That's a book of great comfort. It's, it's not talking about people who just are having rough times. 99 times out of 100, when the Bible talks about God being there for you and with you, it's talking about people who are suffering for Christ's sake. It indicts us, but then thirdly, this passage should inspire us. We should be encouraged to trust Christ when we do experience hostility. 
1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as you are going through a rough time, because you got laid off, because you're sick, because your spouse has been just difficult. Again, what? almost every time, folks, when he's talking about God being there for us and with us and strengthening us and his grace being with us, yes, he can be with us through trials. Don't get me wrong. The garden variety kind of trials. But most often, this comfort is offered to people who've had to bite the bullet, as they say. But rejoice in as much as ye are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. I bet Peter wasn't happy when he denied Christ. No, you're happy when you suffer with him and for him. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. This passage should inform us that we can expect to be attacked for Christ's sake. Not because of your personality, not because of whatever, but because you've taken a stand, we can expect that. It indicts us in the fact that when you think about it, and I thought about it, folks. I'm preaching to me. How many times have I suffered for Christ's sake? And again, we're not going out of here looking to pick a fight, but it just simply means when God puts us in a position where we should take a stand we take a stand. And under those circumstances, he promises to be with us. He promises to give us grace. He promises to give us strength. Here's a quote from Charles Spurgeon. Paul had to believe that God's grace is sufficient. We really don't believe God's grace is sufficient until we believe we ourselves are insufficient. For many of us, especially in American culture, well, no, this isn't from Spurgeon. He wouldn't have said that. This is a huge obstacle. We are the people who idolize the self-made man here in America and want to rely on ourselves. But we can't receive God's strength until we know our weakness. We can't receive the sufficiency of God's grace until we know our own insufficiency. So... Bad news, good news. Bad news is, from my perspective, and I monitor it closely, this world, sadly our own country, is becoming increasingly vocal and hostile towards Christians. That's the bad news. The good news is, when you take a stand, God's with you. His grace, His strength is sufficient. And you can count on the fact that it's much better to take it for the Lord, if you will, than to compromise. 2 Corinthians 12.10. This is why Paul could say, after, after his discourse, okay, you folks are attacking me? Let, let, me, let me tell you about my vision. I'm hesitant to do so because I don't want to be proud. And Paul is acknowledging, I could be proud. For that reason, the Lord 
sent a... What's the word I'm looking for? Thorn. Thorn in, thorn in my flesh. He, he sent a thorn in my flesh. I believe it was, it was a critic. Look, I believe critics are much more painful than physical ailments. I've, I've, I've experienced my share of critics through the years. Nothing will disturb you more than someone who is hostile towards you. You know, and I'm not saying that physical ailments don't trouble us, and I don't wish, I don't do pain well at all. I'm not saying that, but I'm telling you, a, a critic, when, you, when you're committed to the cause of Christ and, and someone comes along and they're criticizing you, that is particularly discomforting. That is particularly painful. And, and Paul is saying, I, I had that, but I have learned to trust in the Lord. In fact, he says, I can take pleasures in infirmities now. He says, because I know that when I'm suffering for Christ's sake, when I am weak, he is strong. Therefore, I take pleasures in a pleasure in infirmities and in reproaches and necessities and persecutions. Look, folks, that's that's all things he's doing for the Lord. The infirmities, the reproaches, the necessities, the going without the persecution. That's all related not to just a tough, hard life. He specifically says, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. As this world becomes more hostile, and for the foreseeable future it appears to be that way, let us... Speak the truth. And there may be folks attack us. It can be difficult family members. It could be difficult people at work. It could be your boss at work. It could be neighbors, people in the community. But when you suffer for Christ's sake, you've, you've achieved a great degree of maturity. We've achieved a great degree of maturity when we can say like the Apostle Paul I take pleasure in that. There's something about knowing that you're a part of a cause bigger than you, greater than you. You're not just in your own little self-defense cocoon mode trying to protect yourself. No, when you are reproached because you've taken a stand for truth, you realize you're a part of something bigger than yourself, You realize that you are a part of something that is significant, that has value, that makes a difference, and you know that Christ is on your side, then as painful as it is to lose the job, as painful as it is to be cut off the team, as painful as it is to to, uh, get an F on the paper, there's something far more satisfying with having been on Christ's side, taking a stand with and for him rather than just being in your own little protective, pitiful cocoon hoping no one will see me and everybody will go away. Paul said, therefore I take pleasures in infirmities and reproaches and necessities and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. We are part of a wonderful cause, a great cause, a cause worthy 
of our sacrifice, worthy of us doing whatever is necessary, whatever abuse, whatever infirmities, whatever reproaches, whatever necessities, whatever persecutions, whatever distresses come our way. When it's for Christ's sake, you can know that when you are weak, he is with you, and he will make you strong, and you'll be the better person for it. Let's stand, please, with our heads bowed. Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope that the service was a blessing to you and that you were encouraged by God's Word. If you have any questions about Mile Baptist Church, please contact us anytime. You can find contact information on our website at myobaptistchurch.com. Thanks for listening.